Hello, product innovators. Today we learn from a 20-year design for manufacturing expert on how to ensure a smooth transition from product development to your first manufacturing run. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, onto the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Michael Core to the show. Michael is the founder of DuroPDM, a product development management tool for centralizing the entire communication process from development to production. They have thousands of users improving their design for manufacturing process today. Michael is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can understand what design for manufacturing is, what is required to fill the gap between product development and your first production run, and how to communicate effectively with all manufacturing stakeholders, especially on your first production run. Now, on to the episode. Hey, Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, pleasure to be here. Excited to talk to you today about design for manufacturing. You've been doing this for over 20 years, and it's a really important subject, whether it's industrial design, mechanical engineering, electronic engineering, or all three of those baked into your product, whether you're starting a new product or you're expanding your product line, there becomes a transition between design and development, your design and prototyping work, and then the eventual production of that. And you've created beautiful software called Juro that helps smooth that process out. But first and foremost, congratulations on a big funding round. I know you're just featured in TechCrunch there. So it's excited to see Joe taking off. Oh yeah. Thank you. No, we're really excited to getting uh, some notoriety about the, the, the work that we're doing and really helping the large hardware community. That's incredible. Give us a bit of a background. How did you get from where you are to now owning this amazing hardware platform with thousands of users? Yeah. So actually my background, I'm an electrical engineer. I've been designing manufacturing products for over 20 years, a wide range of products, anything from telecom equipment to industrial drones, wearables, IoT, you name it. And I've seen quite a lot. I've worked a lot with overseas manufacturers, you know, predominantly tier three, but also tier two and tier one. I even have my own business working in Hong Kong, helping companies get up and running in Shenzhen, getting their products to production. And I've seen quite a lot of mistakes and also big wins and really learned along the way what does make a hardware company successful certainly reducing their costs and revision cycles to get to production successfully. That's great. Now you've obviously built software to help do that. Let's start big picture here. Then we'll get into the nitty gritty details and some of the bigger tips and tips, but let's take it right to the top of the pyramid here. What is DFM? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I certainly did not learn in my university or, or studying electrical engineering or even any mechanical engineering. It's something I learned on the job, but it's incredibly important and really helps more successful teams be more efficient with their design. So DFM, Design for Manufacturability, it's a layer past making your designs functional, you know, electrical circuit design or, or even mechanical assembly design, but making decisions to make it more easily manufactured or more cost-effectively manufactured. And sometimes it has nothing to do with the functional purpose of the product, but maybe changing like a draft angle on a mechanical part or rearranging how your passives are laid out on your circuit board can really improve the efficiency and improve the yield for manufacturability. 
this is a big deal because there's a transition between designing and prototyping the product and making it work well and the actual production of those units. And a lot of the time, especially for a hardware startup, that is a bit of an unknown. It's a void or a gap in your understanding of development. The simple truth is if you design a product and even if you have a decent prototype, it's not yet ready for production. There is this very critical next step that hopefully it's been designed well and designed professionally up to that point so that it is a relatively easy, let's call it starting template to actually do the design for manufacturing. But there's that step, that gap where you take a great design and then you figure out all the little tiny microscopic manufacturing details that all interrelate to figure out how to actually produce each and every part and how to put those parts together. And that is a very critical step. And this is where so much of your experience lies. So let's get into it and talk a bit about what you've seen in that transition or some of the misunderstandings about it or whatever else from you know your design and then carrying through into your actual production phase and that gap in the middle, which we call DFM or design for manufacturing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can remember back to even earlier in my career and, you know, I had been through quite a handful of design cycles of PCBAs as an electrical engineer, but I had never actually seen my designs being manufactured. I would just get the finished products, you know, back in my, in a box, you know, my desk and I'd review them for functional purposes. But it wasn't until the first time I actually went to a factory and saw my personal designs being manufactured and how they were doing it, you know, mixed between reflow or the wave or hand soldering. And I started to ask questions because I saw some of the assembly team was hand soldering a handful of parts. And I asked them, why are you doing that? You know, that's very high risk, high cost, consistent. And they just flat out told me it's because the parts are too close together on the board and our reflow equipment can't properly solder those reliably. So we have to do it by hand. And I had never heard that before. And so I said, well, it's very simple for me to move those parts, you know, further apart. And they said, great. And I said, well, whoa, 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 like what else, you know, what else can you show me? What else should I be doing so that I can make your jobs easier? And that was like the huge light bulb that I had in my career, like, oh, it's not just about designing it for functionality, but it's also about how do I make it designed so that it's easier and cheaper and, and more reliable to actually be manufactured. And that's what really opened up the door for me to kind of just consume as much as I could, not just on circuit board assembly, but even you know mechanical parts, whether it's CNC or injection molding, how can we make subtle changes that really improve the manufacturing and even assembly process? That stuff is so important because first of all, it eases the speed, the time, the money to actually get to production, but it also means that the production yield will be better quality. The units will be more reliable, more robust, possibly even and likely even cheaper if it's done well. We do all kinds of design and manufacturing. The whole purpose at Backwood Design is to take that invention idea from that sketch on your head all the way through to production. But one of the things that we found is extremely important and we've been doing for many years is even in the early concept design phases, it's important to consider manufacturability. Obviously, you won't be able to get into the finite details until you're further down the road into the detailed engineering and prototyping review and all that. But if you build a model, like you said, in the early phases when you were working with that factory, slight changes, very basic fundamental observations to the base functionality of your product. If you build those in from the beginning, that means all kinds of lower reworks in the future, better quality, more time spent on the difficult details, less time spent on the easy details. So one of the first things that I found that can be very helpful when you're thinking about producing a product is think about production from day one. And then as you're getting closer and closer to production, 
of course, you should be moving your matrix from starting heavy in design, light in production thinking to heavy in production thinking, light in design. And that kind of is flowing as you go through your rounds of prototypes and into your production and all that sort of thing. How does your history in looking at those sorts of things, and of course, your software as well, help with easing out those processes in between? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the way I like to think about it is what's the cost to fix an issue? And there's different units to when the issue is discovered. So when an issue is discovered during the design cycle, we'll say that that cost to fix it is like a unit value of one, right? The engineer catches the problem. They're already in design processing. They can very simply make the necessary adjustments. When something is in production, or just pre-production, an issue is found, there's a higher cost because now those designs have disseminated to multiple teams. The original engineer sometimes has to be called back. It might've been weeks since they've even looked at that design. So they have to refresh their minds with it. So we'll say that that cost to fix it is a, a unit of 10. And then the worst is if the product, the issue is found when the product's in the customer's hands, you know, and that's when it's already out in the field, who knows if it has to be recalled or if it's just a one-off issue. And we'll say the cost to fix it at that point is you know, a value of 100, right? These are simple terms, but kind of exemplifies the point. And so the goal is always, how do we constantly reduce the cost to fix something if and when an issue arises? And so you're always trying to empower the designers, the original engineering team to have access to that information as early and easily as possible so that if an issue arises, whether it's from a design capability, whether it's from a supply chain issue, whether it's from a functionality issue, the cost to fix it is constantly reduced. And those are the types of things. And so it's focusing on DFM, obviously, you know, the more information a design engineer has. So there are basic principles about what are good practices for design for manufacturability. And those are pretty ubiquitous. But there are nuances that are specific to the actual manufacturer, right? The manufacturer has their own equipment that they use to manufacture your product, which might vary from manufacturer to manufacturer or their own processes. And those two might have some nuances that are specific to that manufacturer. And so it's not just about going to a book and reading what are the best practices, but actually talking to your manufacturer and say, how would you manufacture this design before you release it to them? And they can provide that feedback to you well because of the tolerances of our particular equipment, we need you to make these changes, or because of the processes that we use or prioritize, we need to make these changes. And so again, bringing that information to the designer upfront reduces the cost to make that change. If you wait until the design's actually been released and in the manufacturer's hands to get that feedback, you've now increased the cost to fix it. That's brilliant. I love the fact that you're looking at the cost and explaining how it balloons over time. Because one of the easy things on the outside, or at least it looks easy to do in the early phase of development is saying, well, let's skip a prototype because we can figure that out later in production. Because we're going to save whatever the few thousands or a few tens of thousands of dollars and not doing that version and not ironing out those bugs then. Although that seemed like it might make sense to get you to production faster, all you're doing is pushing the buck down the road and not only pushing it down the road, but substantially enhancing that. Like you said, by the time it's in the customer's hands, that's far too late. But understand that before that, there's also a ballooning effect that's occurring. So the more that you can figure out before you're actually getting to the producer, or at least in combination with the producer, the easier it will be to smooth those things out and you will be reducing substantial costs down the road. And I like really how you've paired that with the fact that every product is unique. 
Everything has their own nuances. So although you can build something to a perfect design, perfect textbook spec, let's call it, in the first place, you've gone through design, engineering prototyping, you've got a good product, it's built DFM to spec, know that you need a little bit more than that. And that's where the true DFM work comes into play. Generally, sometimes between your kind of final development prototype and your first production sample. Somewhere in between there is that moment where you're taking all those nuances, both from a product perspective, but also from the manufacturing logistics perspective. What equipment do they use and how do they use it specifically to making each of the parts on your unique product? That's where some of those little unique elements come into play, where it saves you a heck of a lot more money in the long run to sort those out today than it does to wait till their problems tomorrow. There's something too that people need to really think through. Your manufacturers do have your best interest in mind and they want to help you, but they don't know your product as well as you do. So there's only so far that they can go to improve your product or make decisions around making more manufacturable without actually having negative impact. The best decision makers are always going to be you. Right. And you want to do it in concert with your manufacturers and your suppliers, but it really falls on you and throwing the designs over the wall and saying, well, we'll just fix it in manufacturing or rely on our contract manufacturer to fix it. They've got more experience than us. That's a little bit blindsided. Yes, they can do some things. And certainly that's why you've hired them. They have access to more suppliers, to more processes. They've seen more things, but they don't always know what the impact is going to be of a change. And so again, you're just making it more expensive when you do throw it over the wall and rely on your contract manufacturer to be that backstop. It's really got to start from you. There's another really good point that's in there that you've mentioned is it's when you're at that manufacturing phase, make sure that you've got your eyes on the prize, primarily from your designers and engineers. They need to be involved in that process because if you leave all of that decision-making, especially on those detailed technical elements up to your manufacturer exclusively, as you said, they may miss some things that really matter to your product that they may not see. Because remember, at the end of the day, a manufacturer's job is to produce parts and put them together. Their job is not to figure out what is best for your product or how that product's going to work in the marketplace. Obviously, there's some consideration. Good manufacturers have a bit of insight in that, but it's a fraction of what your designers or yourself or your engineers are going to have in terms of insight, not only because they understand these processes from a market perspective better, but because they've been working on this product for months, sometimes years. So it's well ingrained into the souls of your design team. Yeah, or they've already thought through that solution. They've already evaluated why it won't work. And so your contract manufacturer will have done that research. So there's just a couple other things to highlight too. So I just want to emphasize how important it is to incorporate your manufacturers into your process, right? So creating that feedback loop, creating that, that connectivity, that communication. But it's also important to make sure that communication channels are there to make it even happen, right? So from my own experience, you know, working for a long time in Shenzhen with Chinese manufacturers, there's a culture there, at least it has been in the past, and I feel like it's changing, where they feel that they own the process and they own the scars. And so if there's any problems with production that's on them to fix, and they don't always share that with you. And so it creates these barriers, these communication barriers, right? So not only do you have to set up a relationship where you can have this mutual trust saying, no, we want you to show us the issues, right? So when I was really entrenched in factories in Shenzhen, first off, 
most of them had proprietary software, MES software that managed their jobs and actually captured the, you know, the first pass yield and the failed codes and all that kind of stuff. And it was very hard to get access to it, both technically as well as culturally, because they felt it was exposing their weaknesses. Even though I constantly confirm with them that, no, I need to see these failures, right? The more you share with me, what are the fail codes? What are the most common causes for rework or failures in your tests? I can go back to the design and help make sure to improve that. It's not always on them to fix the problem. A lot of times it's on the design team to fix those problems, right? And so that needs to be established early on with your contract manufacturer is a relationship of trust and communication, that feedback loop, right? Because otherwise you're just making the problem harder. You're adding more costs. You're not really improving the process overall. And so whether it's a, a social contract or there's actually a technical integration where your CAD software, your PLM software is connected to their MES software in more real time, it's going to constantly improve that feedback loop. That's really good advice. Communication is key in all elements of development, but particularly as you're getting into the manufacturing specking. And it's really simple. More eyes on the prize, the better. You've got a lot of smart designers and engineers building your product have them closely knit with the manufacturer because some of the problems they may not be able to help with, other ones they may have surprising insight to. And in both directions, that's what you we talked about earlier, having the manufacturers weigh in on some late stage development ideation, possibly even some earlier stage development ideation, subsequently going the other direction when it's in production, making sure that your design team has some insight and help into manufacturing. The other thing you have to keep in mind as well, especially if you're working with a design firm or you're working with a larger design team, you have a lot of industrial designers, mechanical engineers, electronic engineers, firmware designers, you name it, that have a tremendous amount of experience in a variety of different manufacturing processes on a variety of different products. You may actually be the manufacturing expert for that manufacturing problem that comes up, even if you're on the industrial design team, as an example. And it's very important that you make sure that that communication is there so that those nuggets of information that outside the box thinking, the alternative thinking on a certain problem or solution is there being presented and open between the teams. And I know, uh, Michael, you talk a lot about this transparency in the process. And that's what we're talking about here. Just explain really what that means when you talk about transparency in the DFM process between all these different stakeholders. Yeah, well, so to elaborate on an earlier comment, it's not just getting those reports, right? The first pass yield reports or the fail code reports or exactly what the, the steps were for manufacturing your product, but it's making sure you get them in a timely and exhaustive manner. Also, from my experience, when I did finally get to a point where the contract manufacturers felt comfortable sharing their reports with me, it was often after the production run was completed. And so along with however many units I ordered and was shipped overseas back to the US, I get a printed on paper report the results of all the tests of each of the units. And so while it was helpful, it wasn't efficient. Um, I had to manually comb through it, but also because of the time lapse, I had already started working on the designs for the next production. And so you kind of get you know, what's called out of phase. And so if the feedback comes back too late from production run one, not enough time to actually impact production run two, it would only be able to take effect until production run three. And so it's not just getting the information at all, but getting in a timely and exhaustive and, and preferably digital manner. So you can take corrective action much sooner. And depending on your relationship with your supplier, perhaps even in real time, 
right? And so that's what I was also referring to earlier when I said things are changing. It has been a while since I've actually been on shop four because as you noted, I'm now running a company that actually provides software that improves transparency, right? I recognize this problem and how prevalent it was in the industry and wanted to do something about it. And so that's what Duro Labs is all about is really promoting transparency and removing the friction to even make these communication channels exist and connect between all the different players. Let's talk about a bit more about that and how that actually works. The Duro platform, essentially, you're trying to get to that real-time information, exhaustive, so you're getting all the information. But of course, the big one you also trickled in there too is you want to sort the information. So how do you handle those things within the platform that you're offering? A lot of it's really based on what has evolved in the technology space. So the hardware industry has been around for quite a while, obviously, and is using a lot of technologies and workflows that were established, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And to be honest, hasn't really evolved much and kind of out of the scope of this conversation. But part of it's just because the demand hasn't been there to change. But what we've seen in the last close to 10 years is a very big cultural shift on who is developing hardware. It's now engineers who fundamentally understand software design principles and agile workflows, right? Young engineers, electrical, mechanical, are now formally studying software as part of their curriculum at university. And so they fundamentally understand these. Whereas back in my day, you know, that wasn't always the norm or certainly wasn't required. So this new culture of engineers is looking for software tools that help them with their hardware design that implement these software agile best practices and principles and adopt what are now commodity technologies like APIs or data models, where it is very easy to connect two different systems and have the data flow transparently with very much effort to get the two to connect. And that's where I feel a lot of the the predecessors, the technologies that have been around for so long have fallen flat. And they haven't really adopted this capability of making it seamless to, quote, plug and play between the different providers of the hardware ecosystem. And so that's what Duro's fundamental is all about, is how do we make it so simple using APIs, using modern you know, data models to make it easy for you to plug in your CAD tool into a revisioning system, a PLM system, to plug in your MES system or your ERP so that none of the teams are slowed down by manual processes to transfer the data, right? So there's no more printed paperwork. There's no more emails. It's all digital. It's all exhaustive and it's all automatic. That's great. If someone wants to learn more, uh, what's the website they can reach you at? Yeah, our website's getduro.com, getduro.com. And as always, I'll put the links in the show notes below, also to your LinkedIn as well. Michael, really appreciate your words of wisdom today on design for manufacturing. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com that's m-a-k-o design.com for a free consultation from one of maco designs for design studios from coast to coast thanks for listening and see you next time